it's not rocket science, you know. As we sort of look for these fancy solutions to climate change, like pumping dust into the air or carbon grabbing machines, it's like you we have forests and we're still chopping them down. And you know, there there are natural air conditioning system. So it's really not rocket science. We need to protect the wild that's left and restore the rest. Hey guys, welcome to the Viewfinders Photography Podcast. I'm your host, Graham Dargy, and my guest this week is wildlife photographer and conservationist Robin Moore, whose photography journey has taken him from the highlands of Scotland to the jungles of Central America. I always say this is a show where we go beyond camera settings and camera brands, and that's never been more applicable than this week's episode. So stick around. Well, how have you been? Hope you're well. Um, I had a busy week shooting some headshots here in Aberdeen, And I also had a job for a company based down in Edinburgh. Um, I had to be there at 7.30 to set up, so I left here at 5am. It was great. I love an early start. And the chance to be in the car for a couple of hours, just cruising, listening to podcasts without a single Disney song in sight, it was bliss. And if you have small kids, then I'm sure you know exactly what I mean. Um, Otherwise, in the last few days, I've been putting together a Viewfinders live event with fantastic ICM seascape photographer Shona Perkins. Shona was a guest on the show about a year ago. She's fantastic and we're really looking forward to bringing this event to you, the Viewfinders community, in March. Uh, for information and tickets on this event and for an evening with Scott Juthino coming up in a couple of weeks, head to viewfinderslive.com. And here's something new. Use the code VF10. That's capital V, capital F, one zero to save 10% off tickets for these online events featuring some of my favourite guests from the show. By spending just a few pounds to support the events, you'll not only level up your own photography, get up close with some of my favourite guests, you'll also help support the show and make it possible for me to continue to produce the podcast. It's a win-win. So use the code VF10 to save 10% on your tickets for the next Viewfinders Live event. Link is in the show notes. All right, I'd love to connect with you on Instagram. Find me at Viewfinders Podcast. I'd love to hear from you, see your photography. So if you go there, find me, drop me a DM or a comment to let me know where in the world you're listening to the show. Okay, our guest this week is Robin Moore, a wildlife photographer and conservationist whose images have been featured in National Geographic, The Economist, Esquire magazine, The Telegraph magazine, PDN, American Photo Magazine, Outdoor Photographer, Wanderlust, and many more publications. And you've probably seen his photographs of Nairobi's Giraffe Hotel or Giraffe Manor, which went viral a few years ago. He's been a finalist in Wildlife Photographer of the Year, a winner of American Photo Images of the Year, and a winner of Outdoor Photographer's Art of Expression Award. Robin's book, In Search of Lost Frogs, depicts his quest to find some of the world's rarest amphibians. Robin currently serves as the communications director for Rewild, whose mission is to protect and restore the wild. Our conversation covers all of these things, plus Robin casually drops the names of some of the best wildlife conservation photographers out there. I hope you enjoy meeting this passionate conservationist and fantastic wildlife photographer. Here's my conversation with Robin Moore. Robin, hi, um, it's Graham here. Welcome to the podcast. How's things? Thank you so much. Great to be here. Things are going well. 
you are a Scotsman and you're now in Washington, D.C., is that right? That is correct, yeah. So I, I suppose when we talk about your journey, um, we'll get to how you ended up there. But um, I've been really looking forward to talking to you. I think you came on my radar a few years ago. I guess your photos of the Giraffe Manor maybe was the first time I became aware of you. I, but I think they maybe they kind of went viral a few years ago. But um, you've been definitely been on my list for a while. For me, let me say this. I don't like to talk about myself on the podcast. I make a point not to. Um, if I do something like a, a photography talk, I did a camera club talk the other night. I'm delighted to talk about myself for two hours. I love it. But in the podcast, I really try and keep the focus on the guests. But um, I, for me, photography has brought me to so many amazing experiences, some of those in Kenya. And uh, it's kind of amazing to me that a, a boy from Aberdeen ends up doing that kind of stuff in the Maasai Mara in Kenya. Maybe, I don't know if you feel the same way about photography and your own life, Um was there something you could say about that, about like some of the experiences mm. that photography has brought to you? Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. Uh, you should say a boy from Aberdeen ending up in the Maasai Mara. I, um, well, yeah, I, I grew up in Edinburgh and I actually, I did my undergraduate in Aberdeen. So I studied um, four years uh, zoology. Uh, and I always had, I barely left the, the shores of the UK, like growing up, I, I, we weren't international jet setters. All, all my summer holidays were spent in the Highlands of Scotland, um, a little place called Drumbeg, where I, I so I mean, I, I guess I first fell in love with like the wild, the outdoors. I just love being outside, um, finding newts, finding frogs. And I always had this craving to, you know, grow up, I grew up with David Anborough, um, craving to, to just explore some of the, the wilder parts of the world. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the common frog and the common toad and the, you know, are, are great, but I knew that there was a, a, a wilder world out there. So I, during my undergraduate, I actually, for my uh, sort of project, I actually went to Cameroon, West Africa. Wow. Okay. For two months, um, which it's amazing. I survived because a group of us, <laughs> Very, very naive, just like decided to hop on an Aeroflot plane and, and land in Cameroon. Some of your classmates. Yeah, there was four of us. Okay. And we had no idea what we were doing. We were camping in the rain. We were living in the rainforest for two months, basically. Um, and the project we were visiting closed down the day after we, or the day we arrived. And we had no idea before we arrived because email <laughs> didn't exist and you know, everything was by letter. It was <laughs> yeah different, different times. So that was where I really went. I spent two months uh, dissecting chameleon poo. I, I was researching the chameleons. So re- research <laughs> became sort of my first vehicle, I think, to get in, you know, to these places. And I always enjoyed photography. I, I had a camera at all times. Um, so I always enjoyed like documenting. And I, 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 I was always into art growing up like I loved uh one of my first expeditions actually sort of excursions was to art galleries in Paris like in high school um and I was quite nerdy you know I loved just going and standing in front of the Van Goghs and the Cezannes and I used to paint a little myself so I think I sort of learned a little of the sort of thinking about tone and 
composition and colors and that sort of informed when I when I picked up a camera you know how I would also think about it quality of light etc mm-hmm. um so the so the camera became I, I think sort of a a way to indulge that because I you know I, I stopped painting uh but the camera and, and photography became a way to kind of a shortcut to, mm-hmm. to indulge my creative urges mm-hmm so did you start photographing i know you were into um frogs in scotland did you is that where you started with photography um not really so i did i did a phd actually on mallorca on on a species of frog there okay and i i started photographing that but i really wasn't very good like i didn't really understand how to do macro photography so my mm-hmm. photos of frogs were never that good mm-hmm. um so i actually first pursued sort of uh conservation path I, I did a PhD postdoc, then I ended up working with Conservation International, where I was heading up the amphibian program. So I was, I was working on amphibian conservation. And that was right around when digital SLR cameras be- started to become like affordable. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I couldn't wait to get my hands on one. And I remember um, I got one of the early Canon and I, and I went to Haiti and, um, you know, didn't really know my way around a digital camera you know raw to me was like uncooked meat i didn't you know mm-hmm. i didn't so i was just shooting in jpegs I was, I, but i came back and um i put together a story like from haiti and somehow ended up winning the conservation international photo contest like for wow. my for my story um and i was just surrounded by very supportive people who who sort of urged me to use sort of my photos and to uh, yeah, basically to tell the stories, right? Um, so I, I started to see the potential of photography um, to really connect people with mm-hmm. these places that okay. I was already going. You know, I was traveling a lot for my for my work, so to have a camera in hand just gave me that extra way to come back and actually connect people with them. So I got really inspired. Yeah. Okay, so you saw the power that photography could that you could harness that in terms of a uh, conservation agenda or point of view. Yeah. Yeah. Cause we were working, Hey, and part of, part of working conservation is getting people to care, right? Like yeah. why, why should someone in DC care, care about something that's happening on a mountaintop in Haiti? I think a big part of it is forging that emotional connection. And I think mm-hmm. photos, photos can do that. Um, but interestingly, you know, I, I wasn't very good at photographing the frogs, uh, but everybody was like, where the, you know, where are the good frog photos? So it really forced me to, to figure out how to do macro well, okay. how to light well, how to, how to actually go and, and get the shots of the frogs. Cause that's what people wanted yeah, from me. And that's what they yeah. expected from you. That's what they frog. expected from me. They're like, there's a great frog story here, but you know, we yeah. need the good frog image. <laughs> <laughs> so I was talking to a guy, I don't know if you'll know this guy, uh, Guy Edwards. Um, he's a, a photographer in the UK and he's, he does some frog workshops yeah. and whatnot in Costa Rica. And it's amazing. I guess you do similar, you'll know the same techniques, but some of the macro techniques that they use um, on, on these tiny, tiny frogs. Um, yeah. So did you, how was, how did you, where did you go from there then? Did you decide, were you challenged to really go after the frogs with the camera then? And what was your sort of route from there? Yeah. Yeah. Um... So around that same time, I actually became also aware of the International League of Conservation Photographers. So Christina Mittermaier was was actually working at Conservation International. Um, and 
I, I don't know how, I guess I got on her radar with, with the Haiti photo story and, and, and met with her and she was enormously encouraging and, and sort of introduced me to the world of conservation photography that you can actually use photos really, you know, to, to achieve conservation. Mm-hmm. And I, I was like, wow, that's like amazing. You know, I, mm-hmm. I want to be doing that. Um, and I found myself just then meeting with National Geographic photographers and people who really like, you know, I felt like I really had to up my game. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got to go actually <clears throat> through, you know, cause I was focused on amphibians. Joel Sartori was just starting his photo art project. I mean, this was mm-hmm. wow, over 10 years ago, uh, mm-hmm. more than 10 years ago, or maybe 10 years ago. Um, I got to go in the field with him uh, and he was shooting frogs in uh, Ecuador and then the Sierra Nevada mountains of California. So I got to learn a lot from him. And mm-hmm. I remember I, I, you know, I was still learning lighting uh, and just to see his, his setups and how he was doing it was sort of mm-hmm. a crash course for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did pursue it hard. And then, you know, I was working in amphibian conservation. It was a pretty bleak time because for amphibians, because the sort of um, studies came out that showed that they were in real trouble. But it was hard to really connect people with like the statistics, you know, mm-hmm. <clears throat> telling people that 2000 amphibian species are threatened by extinction. It's kind of, you know, yeah, falls on deaf ears. So I was like, how, how do we really get people <laughs> to care? Um, and myself and my team came up with this idea of, of doing sort of a, a most wanted sort of frogs, like, you know, frogs that have been missing. And, and having expeditions going out searching for them. Okay. Uh, and that evolved into the search for lost frogs, um, which which really kind of snowballed in a way that I, I hadn't expected in terms mm-hmm. of just like uh, the media just loved it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I went, got to go on a couple of expeditions, <clears throat> Haiti, Colombia, Israel, uh, searching for, for lost frogs. And, mm-hmm. and that then became re- a real, I think, really showed me the power of sort of storytelling and advent you know adventure for for kind of drawing people in getting your foot in the door with their sort of attention and then sort of illuminating these like lesser known species that people would not sort of otherwise you know think about in their daily lives so and just for people listening in search of lost frogs as you it became a book right it Um, did it did yeah so can you maybe talk about that a little bit to describe what that project really was? And it sounded, I was going to ask when you had your mm. first kind of big win for photography, really driving conservation, if that makes sense. Maybe it came mm. about during that project from what you've said. Can you talk a little about that period? Yeah, for sure. Um, so, I mean, it started, I was at Conservation International, it started with just uh, um, coming up with the, the idea for this lost frogs. I remember pulling together a poster of like the top 10 most wanted. And then the communications team at Conservation International um, just got really got behind it. Like they loved it. So that sort of mm-hmm. propelled it instantly. We managed to get funding to support like over 30 expeditions. So it was basically six months of expeditions in search of not only the sort of top 10, but we, I think we had a hundred like lost frogs. Frogs, toads, salamanders, mm-hmm. Sicilians—that researchers were going out to try and find—and in, in 
every case that we could, we were documenting that, you know, we were mm -hmm. doing blogs, we were, we were sort of real time kind of updates so that people, mm -hmm. so the audience felt like they were coming along with the story. Um, mm -hmm. I, there were some significant rediscoveries made through that. Um, you know, some one, one in Israel that hadn't been seen in 55 years was oh, thought wow. to be extinct. Yeah. And, and made it into like kids textbooks as sort of a symbol of extinction, this, this frog. Um, so it was a crazy story. Like the, the wetland had been drained, you know, had been refilled, but everybody assumed the frog was long gone. Mm -hmm. So when it was, it was rediscovered after 55 years, it was, it mm -hmm. was a big story. Um, mm -hmm. but I think in terms of around the same time I was working a lot in Haiti, I, I also, um, I became, I don't know, sort of cognizant of being the tall white guy coming in with my fancy camera. Mm -hmm. um, and I became interested in Haiti in trying to sort of leave something as well, you know, give something back. So mm -hmm. I, I, I started working with uh, kids there on teaching them how to use storytelling to sort of tell their own stories. Mm -hmm. So it was a program called Frame of Mind and essentially uh, I think there was about 20 Haitian youth that we worked with, um, did workshops, took them into the national park. We produced a book. We had a, an exhibit in the local library. Um, then I went back six months later, some of the kids from the first workshop would teach the kids in the next workshop. And that, that was cool. enormously fulfilling because mm -hmm. it felt, you know, really engaging, um, on that very sort of personal level with, with, you know, with, with the kids there. And it was really, yeah, that, that was really fulfilling. Um, mm -hmm. so that, that for me felt like sort of something a little more, you know, in depth as well. Um, mm -hmm. but I think in terms of wins, I think I sort of the first impact campaign that I can think of where I really sort of purposefully used photography for a conservation goal was actually in Jamaica. Um, I think 2014, um, I, I got a call one day from somebody who'd come back from Jamaica and they were distraught because the, this, the government of Jamaica were going to be sell basically the largest protected area in the country mm -hmm. to this blacklisted conglomerate to build a massive transshipment hub. And it would flatten the area where, uh, the Jamaican iguana sort of still lived it was right. sort of a, one of the rarest lizards in the world but it was also you know local communities it was fish sanctuaries it was it was the whole package and it was just a travesty um and i remember that moment just you know saying well i mean what i can do is i can you know i, I was i was with the ilcp international league of conservation photographers and i remember i knew that i sort of had through them platform i was also working with national geographic National Geographic Creative at the time was was representing my work. So I remember talking to them and they said I could do like an Instagram takeover uh, of their mm -hmm. account while I was in Jamaica. Um, I was a total holdout on social media and Instagram. I wasn't really using it at that point. This was, mm -hmm. you know, 2014 when it was pretty early days. But that did sort of change my mind a little in that I saw the, the value of having a, a platform to communicate directly with at that time, I think, I think we only had like 80, 90,000 followers, which felt like a lot for me at that time. Now, mm -hmm. now 
now that doesn't seem like a lot but at that time it felt like a lot and i went down a couple of expeditions there and really just used photography and, and storytelling to try and change the narrative down there that was being mm-hmm. sort of pushed out um and i think the local people weren't being heard and their voices weren't being heard um and it ended up that the the government decided not to develop there uh, mm-hmm. after two and a half years of sort of campaigning um so it showed me kind of like that yeah photography can be very very powerful sort of medium for mm-hmm. for for shining the spotlight on something and just you know in that case getting people outraged and, and speaking out Let's um, move to Kenya then. When would when did Kenya come on your radar? I know you've got a lot of uh, mm. work around the giraffe manor and and so on. So, so when did that when would that chapter of your life kind of begin? Yeah. So I first went to Africa East. I, I've been to East Africa. I first went to East Africa two thousand nine. So I went to Tanzania, Ethiopia, and just I felt a real affinity. You know, I just I got back and I was like, I have to find a way to to go back. Mm-hmm. regularly uh so i just cold called the the owners of, of giraffe manor i mean okay. <laughs> and sent my uh portfolio and i said hey I'm, I'm i'm a photographer i'd love to work with you you know and somehow i don't i, I don't really know just timing something struck right but they were they they was like when can you come mm-hmm. and so i ended up going on a two-week you know photo safari in kenya uh giraffe manor and it turned out they have other properties um as well in the masai mara in samburu in like Gibia. so i did this tour and then um went back again twice the next year and I, i've been going every year since um until until covid uh, I was meant to be going two days after COVID, like shut things down. So I had to, mm-hmm. I had to bail on that the day before I was meant to go. And I'm actually now going in five days. I'm going back. So this right, is my first cool. time back. Yeah. So I'm, I'm really excited. And Giraffe Manor was just a magical, I mean, is just a magical, magical place. So to have been able to go there every year, you know, is just, just feels very, very, like sort of the, yeah the, the golden egg i feel like mm-hmm. i landed landed yeah hit won the lottery there yeah yeah so for people listening who may not know what we're, that is um it's a so it's a hotel and they i don't know they have giraffes in the garden or something can you describe that yeah yeah um and i'll say the the way i sort of i i, I go back year after year now and i actually lead like photo tours so that yeah. that's how it's sort of self-sustaining and people okay. you know um so I, t- I take people so yeah giraffe manor it's on the grounds of uh, it has basically essentially a resident herd of rothschild giraffes which are actually a, a very rare giraffe um and it's it was the last stronghold for these giraffes and they're um free roaming giraffes that essentially i mean you know people the guests can feed them these little little grain pellets mm-hmm. and you like to feed them with their own mouths so they get a big giraffe slobber but the giraffes basically come and join you for breakfast you know they come mm-hmm. and stick their heads through the window if you're in you know one of the upper rooms of the 
the manor, which is a hotel. Um, mm-hmm. Then the giraffes come and, you know, they stick their heads through. So it's just a surreal, surreal experience. You wake up mm-hmm. to, to giraffes. Um, and it, it's, a, it's attached. They, they have sort of a breeding center there for the giraffes as well. So they're very mm-hmm. involved in conservation. So they, mm-hmm. they breed the giraffes and then they translocate them uh, back into areas where they would historically have been also okay. to, to expand the gene pool and, and to try and re- restore them. Um, mm-hmm. So it has, it, you know, it's not just tourist attraction. It's also, yeah. you know, a, a function and active conservation mm-hmm. project. And, and a lot of the, the places I visit in Kenya and the people I work with are very actively involving in conservation and giving back to the communities, okay. um, you know, which is very important. Yeah. So I was just going to ask, it's, it, is it attached to or next to the giraffe center? Like that's a tourist you would go yeah, to? Yeah, it is. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So it's the same giraffes. Ah, okay. Okay. So, and the Rothschild, it's the, it's the one that has a very neat sort of pattern on the, on the patches. Mm, that's right. On the hide, isn't it? Um, it does. Yeah. So, and so are you working then with the owner's, to take people uh, around their other properties for photography tours is that what you mean yeah exactly so they it's called the safari collection they have mm-hmm. um, a company called the safari collection and, and they have a portfolio of properties yeah so they have giraffe manor they, they built an incredible lodge in samburu um and they have tented camp in masai mara and then they have a lodge in in Solio, which is in a rhino sanctuary that I think has the highest concentration of black rhino. Okay. Um, I'm not sure if it's the highest concentration in Africa, but that's incredible number of black rhino. Mm. Yeah. That's good work. Um, if you can do it, uh, my connection to Kenya, my wife comes from Kenya um, for, I, I led a safari uh, in Kenya mm. in Masamara a few years ago when, and COVID has kind of put an end to that side of my business for the meantime at least but same as you i had to cancel a trip at the last minute there mm. but um my takeaway was well two things i like at one one time i'd been in sky on the week before i was in the masai mara and it was i was going up store on sky in the snow and it was you know it's freezing and you're trudging up there and it's beautiful but you know mm-hmm. it's really cold and then a week later, I'm bouncing around on a land cruiser looking at giraffes and I'm, and it's 25 degrees and I'm going, yeah, this is better. <laughs> so, but um, the other takeaway from that was the tented camp lifestyle. I, I just, you know how you can't take a lot of stuff with you. Mm. So I've got my camera, laptop, change of clothes. That was all I needed in the world. I was so happy. Um, and just mm. a, a great experience to be out there with the animals. So for me, that's a great experience. For you as an animal lover and a conservationist, that must be you're like in heaven, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I have to pinch myself every time I'm there. It mm-hmm. just, yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, it's funny. I did a cycling expedition around Sky, and it rained uh, the whole. T- I think the sun came out on the ferry on the way back, and I was like, <laughs> uh, so yeah. Growing up in Scotland, like yeah, Kenya, it just feels like sort of the kind of the landscape of your dreams as a kid, right? I mean, I would just sort of fantasize about being in that kind of that kind of landscape with just that the majestic wildlife that there's few places that can compare in terms of just that you know elephants and rhinos and giraffes just so kind of prehistoric seeming to be and mm-hmm. and to to know that they still exist and are still roaming there is, is really 
it's really incredible. I was interested in your association with National Geographic. It's just so that I was clear, because I wasn't sure when, how you got your in there and what your relationship was or remains with National Geographic. Mm. Maybe you can talk a little bit about how you got in there and, and how you work alongside National Geographic. Yeah, it's a tricky one to get in. It's like everybody, everybody, right, wants to be a National Geographic photographer. I, I try to think how, so for me, I I got two images in the National Geographic Traveler Photo Contest one year, I think in the top 10. And then the following year, I got another one, like second or something. And I think, I think that got me on the radar of like some of the editors there. And then uh, I can't exactly, I, I used to go to um, a lot of the photo festivals, photo DC, and, and those are good for just meeting people in the space, meeting mm-hmm. editors. Mm-hmm. And through my connections with the International League of Conservation Photographers, I got to know people at National Geographic. And, and obviously I was like, you know, I want to be a natural photographer, I want to be a natural photographer, but everybody does. Yeah. I think, I can't remember like what sort of sparked them accepting me sort of in, in the, at that time it was the image, the image library or the image collection, I think it was, um, where they would essentially represent some photographer's work, it, you know, you could, and they accepted me. And, and so I started just, um, uploading my work into their system and they would sort of represent it. And then I had the option to go and, and give a presentation of some of my work. And then they started uh, these fine art galleries. And I think just from that presentation, the the woman at Nat Geo who was spearheading the fine art galleries was like, oh, some of your work would do really well. And, and some of it was from Giraffe Manor, actually. I think mm-hmm. my best my best performing image was was one from giraffe manor so then i started having my some of my images in in the you know the nat geo fine art galleries which was incredible and then i got into the teaching the storytelling boot camps that they they do um so for their grantees they have these they call them boot camps but they're essentially um yeah storytelling training where you have photo video public speaking social media the whole sort of package so their grantees in the field just you know, are, are, are sort of better place to communicate their work. Right. Um, so I taught a number of those, including one in, in Nairobi, actually, for their East African grantees, which was great. Um, so that was another way, I, you know, I've been involved with that geo. Um, and then I've done one of their expeditions uh, in the Caribbean, went on one of their, their crews, mm-hmm. you know, small, uh, it was a sailing boat, um, and sort of a, a exhibition leader, I guess, a photo photo guide, mm-hmm. and that that was fun too. Just just being with the guests and mm-hmm. sort of giving tips and tricks and I'd giving presentations. So, um, you know, I, I I living in DC, I'm able to go and so, or I was able to go and sort of, you know, stock the halls of Nat Geo. Mm-hmm. I think part of it is just reminding people you're alive and yeah and working and, and having the opportunity to show what you're doing. So, you know, th- things have changed a lot with COVID and I, I physically, I haven't been down there for two years. Um, mm-hmm. So, and I haven't been, I haven't been on a photo trip in a year and a half. Mm-hmm. So it, it feels kind of strange, you know, to be 
talking about myself as a photographer yeah without having picked up a camera in a year yeah no i know what you mean it's yeah. uh well it will come right back to you no doubt i'm sure yeah uh, like riding a bike yeah uh, let me just go back a little then and because and joel sartori i can't say his name came up and uh, i was just wondering what you took away from that period because so if people don't know he's doing i think he's doing a project to document every animal in the world right um the, every animal that's yeah in, in held in captivity i think is, is okay cool. okay i didn't okay i didn't realize that aspect okay and so obviously that's an epic project he's doing really well um i'm sure he'll be glad to get my pat on the back so what was that experience like what did you take mm. away from working with a guy like that first thing i took away was just the professionalism i remember we came up across a scene of of dead frogs in a, in a lake and and he just knew that it was the you know the hero shot so he spent a couple of hours working it with reflectors to get the glare off the water just like kind of really you know uh working every angle thinking through every so i really i i, I sort of took from that 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 sort of what it can take to get that one shot mm -hmm. right like you see it and you think it's <laughs> it's been snapped but that's yeah. like two hours of work in that area yeah. um and then i think i mean he's a great storyteller as well he he knows how to how to weave a story um but i think what i really take from joel sartori is his his tenacity in in really focusing on one project and seeing it through you know i mean it's been over 10 years Mm -hmm. and he is so committed to photo arc that it's become you know his his thing i mean it's his you know you think of joel sartori now and it's photo arc i mean he used to be well he was you know photojournalist he was going out telling the stories in the field but he's he's um become so uh focused and i i think there's just a lot to be said for you zeroing in on one long-term project and really mm -hmm. doing it justice uh, you know I, I i admire that a lot mm -hmm. you know because i think there's a temptation to flip from you know one idea to the next mm -hmm. and chase shiny things and i think just the fact that he has gone so deep with this um is really i i you know i take a lot of inspiration from that you know, I think I think there's a lot to be said from thinking that long term and having that vision and that that ambition. Um, yeah, yeah, and I think I think the reason it's every animal in captivity just because of the tech, you know his his method of shooting them. I don't, you know, he can't shoot animals in the wild often that way. In that way, it, yeah, it has yeah. to be a set up with the the, the specific backdrops, right? Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, really, really an incredible endeavor. So you work with Three Wild now, and this is a conservation organization. What I just checked out the website, and what really caught me there uh, was a, a tagline or a slogan on the website, which said, uh, "We don't need to reinvent the planet; we need to rewild it." I thought that really said a lot. Um, can you talk about what the work that those guys are doing, and what's your place in that? Sure. Yeah. Um... So, well, my official title is, is Vice President of Communications and Marketing with Rewild. So, so I 
basically head up communications and marketing. Um, I've been with the organization over eight years, maybe close to nine, uh, mm-hmm. but including when it was called Global Wildlife Conservation. So when I joined, it was called Global Wildlife Conservation. Right. It was for about five of us. It was very small. Uh, it grew a lot. And um, we were sort of planning a, a rebrand for, well, about five years, I think. We came up with the name Rewild five over five years ago. Mm-hmm. Got got the URL, rewild.org, snagged the social handles. Um, uh, but it, a, re, a rebrand is really hard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's hard to get everybody on board. Um, and I think, you know, um, rewilding, I think it's evolved as well, what people understand by it. I think mm-hmm. we take a very sort of broad definition of what, what it means. And I think I think David Attenborough really helped when he did A Life on Our Planet. And he, you know, he said, we, you know, we need to rewild the world, meaning to return it to its natural or wild state. You know, mm-hmm. it, it's not, I think some people have very specific ideas of it being sort of Pleistocene rewilding or bringing back apex predators. But I see it much broader, you know, it's essentially just re- rewilding the planet, but rewilding ourselves mm-hmm. as well, you know, just being more claiming our our place in the ecosystem mm-hmm. being conscious of that um so I, I think yeah when we're thinking of sort of the branding it, it, you know it's it's like it, it's not rocket science you know as we sort of look for these fancy solutions to climate change like mm-hmm. you know pumping dust into the air or carbon grabbing machines it's like yeah. you we have forests and we're still chopping them down mm-hmm. And, you know, there, there are natural air conditioning system. So mm-hmm. it's really not rocket science. We need to protect, you know, the wild that's left and restore the rest. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's sort of how we came up with the taglines. Like just um, really trying to like get people to, you know, kind of really focus on that. You know, mm-hmm. again, I think it comes down to our, our inclination to chase the sort of fancy shiny objects solutions but the solutions have been implemented by indigenous communities for you know Mm -hmm. thousands of years we work in our model is is working in partnership so we're Mm -hmm. we're, everything we do is with partners on the ground um so an example would be we're working or supporting our partners in virunga national park Mm-hmm. Um, in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, uh, where I will actually be going next week, um, and I'm very excited. But but essentially, yeah, it's 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 Africa's oldest protected area, um, and it, it's it's they've shown that you know when you protect these areas, the local communities are healthier, better off. Um, so part of it is sh- is showing that whole narrative from you know you have the mountain gorillas there. They're, they're iconic. They're flagships. Mm-hmm. They're, they're they're draws for ecotourism, you know, which mm-hmm. brings revenue to the park. They, they're they, they're sort of flagships for the protection of this park that also provides water for a hydropower mm-hmm. plant there, which provides seventy percent of Goma's electricity. So, um, you know, by protecting the park, you're you're protecting the the sort of water supply. Um, you're providing jobs, livelihoods for, for the people. So very much so it's, it's sort of, it's showing 
demonstrating by success what what protecting and restoring these areas can do for for us essentially you know mm-hmm. I, I think there's a sort of false dichotomy between conservation and development where, where they should go hand in hand you know and i think it's largely about thinking long term you know we, we we just launched this big campaign to save the okavango um which is uh there's exploratory drilling for oil and gas and, mm-hmm. and this Canadian company, Recon Africa, has a license to drill in an area the size of Belgium, you know, in one of our, you know, as close to pristine as you could get, mm-hmm. home to the largest population of elephants on earth. Um, and to me, it's just astounding that we would go in there and, you know, puncture this this the sort of fabric of this mm-hmm. fragile ecosystem mm-hmm. for a fossil fuel, you know. Mm-hmm that we have seen in other places like the Niger Delta can have disastrous consequences, you know, for, for the people, for the ecosystem, you know, oil and water, they don't mix. And the Okavango Delta is a lifeline for, for close to a million people. It's just, it's astounding to me. So a lot of what we do is also just try to use our communications um, to, to, to shine the spotlight and, and for the Okavango, you know, Franz Lanting very graciously allowed us to use some of his sort of beautiful imagery of the area. You know, he did a book, uh, a coffee table book on the Okavango Delta. Corey Richards very graciously allowed us to use his images. Um, so sometimes it's also just, you know, finding, you know, photographers who've, who've put the work in to mm-hmm. get incredible assets and, and using them, putting them to work to try and protect these areas. Um, so yeah, it's been an interesting one to work on. We we worked on an op-ed with Prince Harry, the Duke of Sussex, and a local activist in Namibia, Reinhold, and they that appeared in the Washington Post a couple of weeks ago. So mm-hmm. it's been really interesting to see sort of the the reaction. We have an open letter that we're asking people to sign. We've got over mm-hmm. fifteen thousand signatures, and yeah, we're really trying to. So a lot, a lot of it is sort of the campaigning elements mm-hmm. as well, using communications as a sort of real mm-hmm. direct tool to, to achieve conservation outcomes mm-hmm. okay so people can support the save the okavango um project i guess at, at the rewild website is would that be the yeah. best place to go yeah yeah and we have a we have a landing page at okavango.rewild.org okay so people go there the open letters there anyone can sign it okay okay i'll put a link in the show notes for that Let's um, talk about your camera gear, if you don't mind. And the gear round is sponsored by MPB. So um, what if you are going to dive into your bag? It'll be different if you're photographing a giraffe or a frog, I'm sure. But what kind of thing comes out of your bag? Yeah. So, well, macro lens is a must. (laughs) Um, That's for the frog, I guess. (laughs) That's for the frog. That's for the frog. And and often it's doubled up for me as as sort of a portrait lens, too. Yeah. yeah, so a macro has been sort of one of my most used lenses. And then when I started going to Kenya, yeah, the telephoto lens became indispensable. So like one to 400. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't really go above 400. Um, I don't love, you know, carrying around a lens that's sort of the size of a, a car. Yeah. You know, I, I, I do like to keep my bag kind of light. And I also like to try to get, you know, closer to what I'm shooting. 
um, mm. or or capture more sort of environmental portrait if I can. Yeah, yeah. You know? um, so and then um, light lighting gear. If I'm doing macro lighting is really critical. So I'll have uh, a couple of strobes and soft boxes, like mm -hmm. you know, um, just to get that. You know, frogs you're often finding at night. So just having the ability to 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 shoot them um, mm -hmm. and get that soft light with the soft boxes. Is that like a speed light you'll take with you, or? Yeah, it's, I always have speed lights that I can get off camera. So I'll have like a wireless system or okay. a wired system. Um, that was probably the biggest sort of learning, uh, sort of breakthrough for me. What was getting getting my speed lights off camera and using mm -hmm. soft boxes just to really you know craft the light and and understanding the relationship between you know how close the light source is or the relative size of the light source and sort of the softness of the shadows mm -hmm. i think when i started shooting macro i thought if i held the you know the flash really far away i'll get softer shadows yeah realize it's so it's almost like it's the inverse <laughs> yeah yeah it's almost counterintuitive that you know the closer you hold your your, your softbox to the, the animal, the softer the, the shadows are. So, mm -hmm. yeah, so that's it. I mean, tripod, I always travel with a tripod. Um, yeah, that's pretty indispensable. And then a, a, a cable so I can shoot, you know, if I'm doing like a long exposure, sometimes I, I do sort of wide angle macros that mm -hmm. require pretty long exposure. So just having the ability to, to shoot without, you know, my finger wobbling the, wobbling the camera yeah okay and so are you uh, a nikon guy canon guy what system are you using i was a canon guy uh now i actually shoot fuji film okay um yeah i again i, I just got tired of lugging such heavy gear yeah that i i wanted to go mirrorless um it was actually uh, when i did my podcast i, I chatted with uh, matteo paley and he just, he spoke <laughs> about using Fuji in such a way that it made me want to try. Mm -hmm. And and I, I got a Fuji film and I just loved the feel of it. It was mm -hmm. so tactile. It's all, it's all dials and buttons. It mm -hmm. feels very, you're not sort of rummaging around in menus mm -hmm. as much. You're just use, using your, you know, you're able to, to tweak just with dials on, on, on the camera. So I just, I really like that. And it actually brought back an enjoyment of photography that you know that i hadn't felt in a while so mm -hmm. i actually just i loved using using the system so now i have the, the fuji xt4 um so uh yeah and then i i the lenses just are lighter everything's just lighter so yeah. you know it's, it's heavy strict weight limits you know on, on some of these small flights that mm -hmm. i do to get places and, and yeah you know when i'm in virunga it could be hiking six seven hours to find gorillas and yeah. you don't it just kills my back to to carry like 200 pounds of camera gear so yeah I, i've actually tried to really simplify and strip down yeah cool okay well uh, i wondered if there's anything that you have probably not because you've simplified and stripped down anything you just you bought it but you thought it was a good idea but you never used it boy i feel like there's a lot of things like that I bought like a 360 camera little thing at one point that I thought would be cool. Yeah. And just I never used it. Mm -hmm. Just not as cool as I thought. <laughs>
Um, okay, that means we can move on to double exposure, right? So this is where I'm going to ask you about a particular image um, uh, and ask for the story behind it, and then I'll throw it back to you to tell me about if there's one particularly memorable shot of yours that sticks with you for whatever reason. So um, I'm going to go with... It's hard to, to go past this one. There's a picture of a lady with a spider on her face. Let's let's go for that one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah another one. So so the lady is actually uh, Aza Gonzalez. She's a Mex Mexican okay. actress. And yeah, so I, I was in LA. Um, I was actually doing a shoot with Suki Waterhouse uh, for... for Rewild, which was Global Wildlife Conservation at, at the time, and Aza Gonzalez. I had the opportunity to shoot her, so I wanted to to shoot her with some Mexican mm -hmm. species um, to really just just make these sort of short kind of educational videos mainly, but but also shoot some stills. and And I, I turn up with a you know this tarantula. Um, I can't remember how how the idea of putting. I think I just threw it out there almost as a joke. <laughs> okay. Like, should we put it on your face? And she was uh, totally game. So she actually had this tarantula mm -hmm. crawling across her mm -hmm. face. Um, yeah. And then we, we got the shots. And that, that I remember she posted it. And it was it showed up in, I think, a lot of the UK tabloids <laughs> started sharing it. Um, so, yeah, that, that's, that's where that came from. Yeah, you can't, I mean, you have to stop. And, or either you stop and look at it or you just keep scrolling because right. you don't want to see that. <laughs> but, you're like, um, but yeah, okay. So I, I guess with you being familiar with jungles, you're not creeped out by uh, creepy crawlies, okay? Not really. I mean, this, there's definitely some things I don't like. I, I don't like centipedes or ear, earwigs <laughs> still freak me out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then, okay, so she was okay with it. And then how long was that guy on there? quite a while um she she lay with it there for quite a while um mm -hmm. yeah i mean the whole shoot um was i was with her a couple of hours and we mm -hmm. we also did a, a shot with a a red red capped amazon parrot that flew oh, yeah. flew past her um mm -hmm. and that was i also i like that shot too just well yeah freezing the bird in, in flight um yeah that's it's a beautiful shot you came prepared on that day with all your props yeah exactly it was yeah it was very it was funny because it was a very last minute sort of production because she wasn't sure if she'd be able to make it that day um mm -hmm. and i found out that morning she could so it was um and shooting in studios like that is sort of a little a little out of my comfort zone so mm -hmm. um but but i yeah so the the, the spider was on her fur you know it, working with i guess these actors they they sort of they're great at sort of doing it until it's done right mm -hmm. they're sort of like let's get this shot um mm -hmm. so she lay with it on her face for as long as sort of needed till i was like i think i got you know got the shot yeah and she looks good like she doesn't look scared or in any way which so she's she's maybe she's a really good actor or she just wasn't scared she was completely relaxed she'd done a she'd done a, a film before with snakes where she had snakes crawling over so she she was okay. she was kind of relaxed very relaxed around animal okay. she held a snake too that i had without oh, any still her as well okay yeah that was that was so i had a a, a whole series of, of mexican <laughs> <laughs> species for, for her Cool. It's an amazing shot. Obviously, it's, you know, it's, it's perfect because it's nothing that you've ever seen before, you know. So 
Okay, let me throw it back, Robin, if there's a picture or just an experience or a story that really sticks with you from your photography journey. Probably an experience or story, probably photographing the, the Javan rhino, actually. Um, mm -hmm. So the Javan rhino, there's only 68 of them left. There's none in captivity, none in zoos, and very few photos of them um, in the wild. So... Mm -hmm. I went on a, a an expedition essentially to to try and um, photograph them, and it was ten days in hides, going up and down rivers, um, and after days of trying, I got six minutes, I think, with with the javan rhino, oh, wow. Um, okay, wow. and it was like heart stopping moment where I almost froze, almost couldn't press the shutter because it was so. Mm. The moment just felt so intense, you know, when you build up so much. Mm -hmm. and, Something's there in front of you. Um, so that, that stands out to me as sort of one of those moments where I just felt insanely fortunate, you know, to be there in front mm -hmm. of this majestic, majestic creature and just a lot of luck that it was there, you know, could have spent 10 days and got nothing. So, yeah, yeah that really stands out. So is, was that in, is it in Indonesia or? In Indonesia. So, yeah, um, Island of Java. Okay. So okay, so that that was that's right up your street then, really conservation type of image with an endangered species, and with the investment of time, obviously to get there, that must have been super rewarding. You must have been buzzed when you got that. Yeah, I mean, it was uh, yeah. When you spend that much time sort of planning a trip and and sort of anticipating it, yeah, it's it's mm -hmm. incredible. It's just, I mean, it was. To get there, it was, you know, a couple of flights, a drive, a boat ride, six-hour hike, and then you set up camp, um, and you're there, you know, for 10 days in the forest, really with no idea if you're going to get a single yeah. shot. So to, to, to get that in the bag just mm -hmm. felt enormously rewarding, an enormous relief, you know, you put so much yeah. in the idea of coming back empty handed is also kind of crushing, you know, and every day that goes mm -hmm. went past that I wasn't seeing it or getting a shot. We'd see traces. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, it felt kind of a little, your soul gets crushed a little, a little every day yeah. that, that you're not getting anything. Yeah. And the pressure is building and building. You're obsessing. I get, I, it's just how I would be, I would yeah. be obsessing mentally totally. dreaming about it, pressure building. Yeah. And so, it, yeah, you're alert every moment for the fact that it might appear and, and, mm. and you know, every moment it's not appearing, it's sort of like, it's that investment. Yeah. You're, you're basically obsessing. Mm. Well, it's, you must have had a lot of great moments and there were a few other pictures I could have asked you about, but um, just amazing. Some of the things that you must have experienced in your photography journey, but let's, let's move on. And uh, the last round is called motor drive. It's a quick fire round. If you're up for some quick fire questions. Sure. Uh, right, wide angle or telephoto? Wide angle. Coffee or tea? Coffee. Okay, you've become American, I see. <laughs> um, <laughs> I drink coffee as well. I don't know why I'm saying that. Um, okay, expensive lens cloth or just the corner of your shirt? Corner of my shirt. Good man. And this is kind of a new question. What's your go-to emoji? Go-to emoji? Oh, my goodness. I don't want to say the poop emoji. Um, <laughs> <laughs> my go-to emoji. 
I would say the, the, the crying with laughter emoji is my go-to emoji. It's probably one of the only ones I really use. Okay, cool. That's a good one. Um, okay, I always like to do uh, it's kind of a music round based on the location of the photographer or where they come from. So for you, it's what's the best Scottish musician or band? I think Bell and Sebastian. Okay, definitive. Yeah, <laughs> you didn't you didn't go with Rod Stewart. It was definitely Mogwire up there, but okay, Bell and Sebastian. We have a lot of good bands from here. I mean, I think we're doing quite well. Yeah, there's a lot to choose from. Um, okay, what's a weird thing that I can find in your camera bag? A weird thing. Uh, God, that's a good question. A weird thing. My goodness. Um, not sure. I have any weird things in my camera bag. I tried to keep weird things out of there. <laughs> cool. I always find that people over the years they pick up little things that they've figured work. You know, like I might have some. I've always got shower caps in my one of my pockets. Yeah, I've 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 carried weird things like polystyrene cups for diffusers. Okay, like flash diffuser. Flash diffusers. I often find I'll use what's on hand. Mm-hmm. Uh, and sometimes I have weird things that I'll keep to to just diffuse the light. And yeah, oh, I love that one. That's a really good field crafty kind of tip. So polystyrene cups for flash diffusers. Um, Don't buy them though; not good for the environment. But you know, if you find one, <laughs> okay, you reuse one that you left. Reuse one. <laughs> okay, um, okay. We've I, I was sometimes ask about a photographer that we should all know. Have you got a heroic photographer that you look up to? Well, yeah, that's a good question. God, so many. There's a photographer who uh, I. I taught one of one of my boot camps, and I remember thinking, "Why am I teaching her? Because she's just incredible and so versatile." And and literally this last week, she just got front page story in the New York Times um, with whale shark story in the Philippines. And and wildlife was not her, you know, her niche. So I was like blown away. Her name's Hannah Reyes Morales, um, and she just she continues to impress me um with with her work and the versatility of her work and the sort of the, the photojournalism that she does cool okay brilliant i'll put a link in the show notes people can look that up and the last question robin when do you feel at peace with the universe i feel at peace with the universe when i'm sitting on sundown rock at sunset looking at the vast expanse of the samburu landscape with elephants in the distance with uh, gin and tonic in my left hand, my camera in my right hand. Yeah, great place to be. Well, I, I thought it was going to come up in the conversation how you ended up in DC. It will remain a mystery because we're out of time. So, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, thanks a lot, Robin. I really appreciate it. So interesting to hear about your work and your your view on the world as well. So, um, I hope people check out your photography and also your work with Rewild as well. So, thanks a lot, Robin. Thanks, Graham. I appreciate it. It's been, it's been fun. Thank you for listening. Follow Robin on Instagram. Links to everything we spoke about are in the show notes. And don't forget to use the code VF10 to save money on your ticket for the next Viewfinders Live event. And if you like this episode, then check out my conversations with Marcel Van Osten and Alex Mustard. That's it for now. Have a great week. Take care. I'll see you soon.